Hello, hello. Patrick here with a very quick introduction to the show. In the past, EC and I offered paid subscriber-only content, episodes that only paid subscribers would have access to. For various reasons, we stopped doing that some number of months ago, but we didn't want to lose some of the episodes that we had put out during that time. So occasionally, we are going to revisit some of those episodes. This week is one of them. If you listen to it the first time through, if you were a paid subscriber, thank you, thank you, thank you. Hopefully hearing this a second time is helpful. And for most of you, it will be the first time. So do enjoy. Thank you. And let's get into the show. Hello and welcome to The Consistency Project with E.C. Sinkowski. My name is Patrick Cummings and every episode I have the privilege of having a discussion with E.C. on subject matters that range from nutrition to fitness to the choices we can all make to live a healthier, more functional life. By exploring both the principles at play and the actions worth carrying out as a result, it is our goal to get you thinking, get you moving, and get you taking more consistent steps toward optimizing your well-being. Thank you so much for tuning in. Hello, how are you, E.C.? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm fantastic. We are diving into Quick Bites today. Quick Bites is when you you look at. I'm going to guess. I'm just guessing that there's a spreadsheet with questions. Is am I am I accurate? Is it an actual <laughs> spreadsheet? I wish it was. I think one started, and then there's screenshots, and then there's emails. <laughs> it's a system. I don't know if it's as organized as you're giving me credit for. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, there's a system of questions or of finding questions, and so you're going. Quick Bites is when we go into whatever that system looks like and pull out really good questions from listeners and from readers and from followers on your socials. Good questions, excellent questions, but sometimes questions that don't need the full EC 25, 35 minute deep dive. And so our goal is five questions, five minutes each, and we'll get in and get out. You ready? Let's do it. Five by five. Five by (laughs) five. First question, Molly asks, I'm wondering if you can talk about sugar alcohols. I've read about them, but still don't exactly understand how they work in the body and what they quote unquote count for in food. Mostly I find them in protein bars, which I don't eat a lot of, but, but I really am just trying to understand what the heck they are exactly, how they work and how they affect the body. Yeah, sugar alcohols. So they are a type of polyols, which is a type of FODMAP. And so FODMAP is the acronym for fermentable oligo dye monosaccharides and polyols. So there's that word polyols, and that's what sugar alcohols are. Now, some examples of sugar alcohols include erythriol, Mannitol is super common. Sorbitol, xylitol is really common, especially like in gum. But like all of the other FODMAPs, polyols, i.e. sugar alcohols, are these are naturally occurring in fruits and vegetables. And collectively, FODMAPs are these short chain carbs that are relatively resistant to digestion. And so we often hear, especially for people who have IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, there's a common recommendation to have a low FODMAP diet to see if that reduces some of their symptoms. Because resistant to digestion means that these things don't break down in your stomach and small intestine. And so instead they move on to the large intestine, AKA the colon. And once they're there, they might be broken down by the gut microbiota, which are just the living microorganisms that we have in our colon. But a byproduct of the microbiota breaking them down is of course gas. And sometimes just their presence in the GI tract, the fact that they haven't been broken down yet, they have this osmotic effect, meaning they actually can pull water into the GI tract as well. So we could have more gas or we could also have more water. 
more water in the GI tract generally means more expedient exit out of the GI tract. So a common... That is an interesting way to put that, but okay, moving on. So a common side effect of sugar alcohols is typically these digestive distress, bloating, diarrhea, especially when they're eaten in excessive amounts. Now, how much of each of these FODMAPs, including the sugar alcohols, are going to be digested or not is going to be affected by which we're we're talking about, like which sugar alcohol, is it erythriol, is it sorbitol, et cetera, as well as things like the dose, which of course we've talked about ad nauseum. It also will be affected by which microbiota you have, which actual living microorganisms are unique to you and in what populations. And even if you're eating other foods at the time, so all of these different factors can affect why some people have more of a response than other. And we talked about this in the Quick Bites episode on additives that we did recently, but it's really the chemical structure of molecules that determines how it's going to be handled by the body, which was one of kind of Molly's concerns here. You know, what are the elements? How many of them are there? What are their bonds? How are the chemicals arranged? And so we've got a sugar alcohol like erythriol And this is like a sweetener, like, and it acts kind of like sucralose, which we talked about as well in that Quick Bites episode, where most of it is rapidly absorbed, and then it's just excreted unchanged. So the chemical structure doesn't really change from when it goes in your mouth to when you eliminate it. And so this doesn't actually really fit with that poorly absorbed classification of FODMAPs, but there's always a range of relevance when we talk about things with these terms, when we say things like, ah, poorly absorbed, it's like kind of an umbrella classification and there's a range of how much it's actually going to apply. And so for something like erythriol, because it's not really used, it's not really broken down at all, its caloric value is almost zero calories per gram. And it's unlikely to account for this digestive distress that we usually associate with FODMAPs. But then conversely, if we take another sugar alcohol, something like xylitol, this one actually is about 50-50, 50% absorbed and metabolized by the liver, meaning it's going to actually be used for energy. And then the other 50% goes on to the colon where maybe 50% of that 50% is broken down by the gut microbiota. And we get, you know, of course, the gas production as well as some short chain fatty acids. These short chain fatty acids in the colon then go on to be used for energy in the colon. And then the remaining amount of xylitol that hasn't been broken down and absorbed or broken down by the microbiota, of course, go out the back door. So there are differences in how the body handles them. I mean, I just kind of explained kind of two almost extreme differences here between the two sugar alcohols. And so it's important to understand that you know, we can't just give a broad sweeping stroke about things, just like we said with sweeteners, that like, this is always how it's going to go. I do want to just remind people that sugar alcohols are naturally occurring. And so even though nature, natural doesn't always mean safe, as we talked about before, I think that sometimes people will see these in protein bars and think that it's not a clean source when in reality, we we have sugar alcohols naturally occurring in fruits and vegetables. The other thing to point out, though, is we generally attribute less calories to the sugar alcohols than carbohydrates. So carbohydrates, we classically get four calories per gram. Sugar alcohols are about one to three, 1.5 to three calories per gram. And the FDA specifies which one, which value you use. And so this is part of the reason why when you're looking on your nutrition label and you try to figure out where the calories are coming from, from the different macronutrients, you might, the math might not work out (laughs) that you might be like, Oh, when I multiply the carbohydrate grams by four plus the fat grams times nine, plus the protein grams times four, I get a higher number of calories than what's listed here on the label. And it's because Mm -hmm. they're able to use a lower calorie 
amount for these sugar alcohols. Now, people end up being like, well, then shouldn't I track the sugar alcohol separately from total carbohydrates? No, don't get too in the weeds with that. You're just going to track on total macronutrients. It's not significant enough of a difference for the most part in most people's diets to really get in the weeds with that. But ultimately, sugar alcohols are naturally occurring. How exactly they're broken down is going to be dependent on their chemical structure. Some aren't going to be broken down at all, like erythriol, so we don't get any calories from that. Some are going to be broken down and we do get some energy from it, something like a xylitol, so that's going to have some energy, but it's not going to be as broken down as, let's say, a starch with just glucose in it. And so that's why the caloric value is lower. And so, yeah, and this is also why, of course, this degree of breaking down is why some of us will have more digestive distress than others, especially depending on the dose that we consume of it. Next question, Tanya. I would love to see a deep dive. I assume she's okay if she hears one. I would love yes. to see a deep dive into alcohol and its effect on health. I think sometimes, oh, it's just one glass of wine. That's not a big deal. But is it? There are so many mixed messages out there. Yeah. So I loved this question. And originally was just like, let's do a whole alcohol episode. But then I realized that we had already done a Quick Bites question on this. Quick Bites episode three, question five is on alcohol. And so that link will be in the show notes. But basically it was asking about moderate alcohol consumption and, and weight loss or lack thereof. And so that's one of the things that people are always interested about health and alcohol. But I also kind of, when I was thinking about this question, was thinking about it in terms of just disease risk, because she asked specifically about health. So I was wondering if it was kind of going more in that direction. And, and specifically, I was thinking about with cancer, because we know that that alcohol is a known carcinogen. And so from the CDC, we do find that alcohol raises your risk of getting six ty different types of cancer, mouth and throat, larynx, esophagus, colon and rectum, liver, and then breast cancer as well in women. And so what happens and why it's associated with that is when you drink alcohol, your body breaks it down into a chemical called acetylaldehyde. And this one is what damages your DNA which basically can affect the body's ability to replicate that DNA correctly. And, and cancer becomes this uncontrolled cell growth, uncontrolled cell replication because it's been damaged. And so this is, again, why we find alcohol on the list of known carcinogens. Now, how susceptible you are to DNA damage from alcohol, there is going to be some genetic variation here for sure. It, it is possible that you don't drink very much, but genetically you're more susceptible to DNA damage just as some individuals are more genetically predisposed to become alcoholics if they drink in excess, genetic differences are going to play a role in how vulnerable somebody is to carcinogenic effects of alcohol. Given all of this, I think it's not surprising to find that alcohol is associated with these different cancers along the GI tract for the most part, right? We, we talked about mouth and throat, larynx, esophagus, colon and rectum, liver, of course, liver, because that's where it's processed. And so I think that's not that surprising because the alcohol is in contact with those different tissues. But then I think the breast cancer link is really interesting. And I was looking into theories of, of why this would be. It's possible that the damage to the liver from the alcohol changes how estrogen is metabolized. And that could be what is the contributing factor to breast cancer. And I found this study that has women who have two to three alcoholic drinks per day had a 20% higher risk of breast cancer compared to women who didn't drink alcohol. And so that's sort of what I would want Tanya to understand in addition to maybe the weight effects that we see is that there is this increased risk from alcohol 
to developing cancer, how great the risk is, is going to come down to genetics and, and of course, dose as well. And so the re recommendations are that if you do drink, to do so in moderation, of course, which would be no more than one drink per day for women and no more than two drinks per day for men. And a drink, sometimes you have to define that as well, because those <laughs> serving sizes increase when we're not measuring them, is a 12-ounce beer, five ounces of wine, or 1.5 ounces of hard liquor. And it's interesting, like, th this is also assuming some standard concentrations of alcohol as well. Like that's assuming that a, the 12 ounce beer has 5% alcohol. And so now we've seen a lot of these different beers come out with a higher alcohol content, right? Like 7% or maybe higher. That means that you would actually get less than a 12 ounce serving if you were having one of those and following these recommendations. And of course, in part what these recommendations are that you should not start to drink because of any potential health benefits. It's only if you already choose to choose to drink. And I think where it, what gets a little bit confusing there is we hear about the Mediterranean diet, right? And mm -hmm. Mediterranean diet is so wonderful and these cultures have less chronic disease and guess what? They had wine as part of their diet. I think what's really unclear about these cultures is are the health benefits really from the wine or is it really because they don't have an excessive amount of it? Or is it because their baseline diet is so healthy? Or is it because they have a really like great lifestyle where they stay active and don't have a ton of stress. And of course, to be honest, it's probably all of those factors. And it's mm -hmm. not just coming down to the fact that they have wine in the diet and that's why we should have it. So, so definitely the recommendation is not to start drinking because of these association studies with some of these yep. cultures, right? And so all in all, to try to summarize all of that is, yes, alcohol can be part of a healthy diet. It's definitely easy to consume too much. This is why we see it with weight gain. And then it also does increase the risk for some health conditions, for example, cancer. And I really can't give much recommendations beyond that. It's really going to be up to the individual to choose what they want to do with that information, of course, and deciding where they want to fall on that risk scale. It's funny that we talked about this. Just over this weekend, I learned, you know, the red Solo cups? Mm. I don't drink, so this, maybe everybody else already knows this, but those red Solo cups, sometimes they're blue. Yes. They have three rings around them. Yes. And those rings are there to indicate how much hard liquor how much wine and how much beer they're oh, probably really? at that one and a half ounce, five ounce, 12 ounce. Yeah. Holy cats. I, I told something every day. She was, she was utterly unimpressed that I learned that this weekend, <laughs> I'm but impressed. I'm, now I, I get know. to tell you, so I'm happy about it. I didn't know that. But, okay. Yeah. All right. So they Daniel put our asks, measurements on there. That's right. Daniel asks, how do you feel about supplements like athletic greens? And that's a brand for getting in more vegetables. Yeah. And I'm just going to answer this in terms of the powdered greens. Cause I think there's a bunch of these ones out there. Probably, yep. I've definitely used ones that weren't athletic greens over, over the years, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think I've kind of answered this in different ways through our questions that we've had about multivitamins, right? And even our questions that we've had about powders. But this is, this is a popular one. I have, I have multiple screenshots of this, <laughs> this question, for <laughs> in the sure. System. Yeah, in the yeah, system. In the system. I do. I do. So, yeah, I mean, ultimately, these aren't harmful, per se. I also don't think they're really that necessary either. It always is remind me again, why we aren't just eating the vegetables. <laughs> mm -hmm. When we look at something that's giving us this high dose of micronutrients, like a multivitamin, like these greens powders, and they really don't have many calories, you know, and they're in this powdered form, we don't fill up. And so because we don't feel full, we're going to fill that space. <laughs> we're going to still eat food to make us feel full. 
right? And so sometimes I think we use these powders as a way to convince ourselves that we're eating healthy. But if we just have a high amount of micronutrients and not the right amount of macronutrients or calories, we have this mismatch of quality and quantity. And so this is the real problem with supplements. They don't fix the quality and quantity conundrum, right? Now, the conversation normally goes in one of two ways. One is people will say, well, no, I eat whole foods. I just, I just don't like vegetables. You know, isn't this a way for like to stopgap that solution? And the second was, no, 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 I eat plenty of vegetables, but shouldn't I eat more vegetables? Mm. <laughs> and in both cases, I still come back to no, I, I don't really recommend them, right? Okay, so why? As I mentioned, of course, I do stress eating fruits and vegetables. We all know this. And I, it's because it's a great way to achieve this match of quality and quantity simultaneously. But I think with this, we forget that all whole foods provide quality. It's not just fruits and vegetables where we get our vitamins and minerals from. You know, meat, for example, is very nutrient dense. Dairy can be for certain nutrients, depending on what we're talking about. Nuts, oils, even whole grains, much to people's surprise, can be really great sources of some of these nutrients. And so this is where this mixed whole foods diet does a really good job of getting all of the nutrients you need from a micronutrient standpoint. And even then, it also affects our total quantity. We don't only get micronutrients from green vegetables. And Vegetables, this is where I think we talked about this in one of our prior podcasts, that vegetables, yes, typically they're going to have more vitamins and minerals than let's say fruits or beans or potatoes when we look at them on a per calorie basis. But the rub is we don't end up eating that many calories of vegetables. Mm. So like leafy greens are a great example. A cup is considered a serving under the USDA as, as what a typical serving size is. And that has less than 10 calories. So it's like, yes, on a per calorie basis, we might be getting a lot of vitamin K, but we just don't eat that many calories. And so when we compare what nutrients we're getting from meat, from fruit, from dairy, from grains, et cetera, we often find that we might be getting more nutrients from these servings where we eat more calories of them. And yeah, we did discuss this in the animal versus plant-based podcast. So we can't just look at how the nutrients play out on a a per calorie basis, we have to look at what happens across the whole diet when we actually eat certain servings of a certain number of calories. So that's sort of the first one is, is that you don't necessarily need lots of greens to hit all of your nutrient needs. Now, the second one is, or the second part that I wanted to say here is when people say they don't like vegetables, I, I kind of am like, do you mean all of them? Like, we don't eat anything? <laughs> like, no tomatoes, no bell peppers, no carrots. Or you just mean, like, you really don't like kale and broccoli, right? Mm -hmm. And it is hard for me to sympathize too much with the all vegetable thing. I just don't totally get it. I, I, I have a hard time figuring, like, there's just none that you like in any preparation style <laughs> or any any variety of them. Because we have to remember that as our restriction list grows longer, the downstream effect of that is potential nutrient deficiency, let alone diet monotony. So mm -hmm. if you're like, hey, I don't like leafy greens, I don't like kale. Okay, fine enough, we can get those nutrients elsewhere in whole foods. But as that list grows, no leafy greens, no carrots, no tomatoes, no broccoli, no asparagus, <laughs> no Brussels sprouts, no cabbage, and so on, now it becomes harder and harder to make this nutrient puzzle work. It becomes harder and harder to meet our nutrient needs and not just of one, not just of vitamin K, for example, but all of the nutrients. The longer your list grows, the harder this puzzle is to solve and potentially not even possible. 
And then more so as that list continues to grow, it is more likely you're going to be filling that space every single day with these calorically dense options. And to give you any more specifics than that, we have to do a micronutrient analysis on exactly the foods you're eating, what, which ones, which combinations, what exact nutrients are in them. But when you cast a really wide net and you say, I eat all of the things, it's less likely to be an issue and we probably don't have to worry about it. I also just want to say like, we don't need bowls and bowls of this stuff. And I think this is where sometimes people are like, no, no, I like vegetables and they're part of my diet, but shouldn't I have more? And I just think that people sometimes think that they need to have like six cups of kale <laughs> every day. When we look at how this can fit into a diet for, to get, for us to get all of the nutrients we need, sometimes you might just need one cup of spinach or one cup of broccoli. It'll help round out your day. There's this sort of obsession that more is always better. And, you know, I, I think, yeah, we said this in the animal versus plant-based podcast. Like, I don't need 500% of my vitamin K every day. I need 100% of my vitamin K every day, right? And some of this also, like, we have storage capacity for some of these minerals and some of these vitamins. And so we don't always need to be having the perfect amount every day. And so, again, like, I just want people to kind of come to this middle ground of, no, I don't need an excessive amount. Yes, I have to have a good amount of mixed whole foods in the diet. And that's really going to be adequate for most people. And can we come up with some some scenario where someone's doing this perfect macronutrient balanced intake of, let's say, rice and deli turkey, and then they're adding powdered greens to give them their micronutrients? Yeah, we can come up with a theoretical scenario where this actually works out optimally, where somebody can somehow, you know, eat, get their protein and their carbs from sources that aren't as micronutrient rich, and then they supplement with micronutrients and they're okay. It it turns out there's like zero people that are doing this in real life, (laughs) you know? And so, so, (laughs) and so this is why I keep coming to the fact that like supplements don't change our outcomes eating foods with those nutrients do. And so it's really going to be hard for me to keep recommending any of these supplements when I feel like we can do it with a whole foods based diet, that's going to get all of these outcomes that we want. What I would say to sum that up is don't eat like my four year old, (laughs) who who, as he gets older continues to say, I won't eat that anymore. I was gonna say picky, but we're working on it. I think he's just normal, normal four, normal, Normal normal four. four and a half. I got to need some carrots before we were recording. So I was very happy about that. My parents had to pay me a dollar to try blueberry pie when I was little. So I was super picky. <laughs> blueberry pie? Come on now. I'd, I'd pay I know. Some, obviously, I'd pay, happily pay somebody a dollar to eat blueberry I pie. I know. I know. All right. Well, that's a whole other podcast. We can so talk there's, about that I was later. trying to say with that is there's hope. There's hope. They might come around. <laughs> All right. Next question from Andrea. I am a physical therapist and I frequently have patients either ask me or comment on nutrition. And sometimes these people want things to be complicated. They'll claim to feel terrible after eating X, Y, and Z, and yet they have 50 plus pounds to lose. So you know that they're not moderating their intake or they're just doing some keto fasting thing or juice cleanse. And I feel like their focus is completely missing the mark for what will make clinically meaningful changes in their health and weight. When people seem to want to stick to their guns on the frou-frou stuff, and she puts frou-frou in quotes, just in mm-hmm. case we were curious, the frou-frou stuff, and it's actually a client patient, not just Uncle Bob at the Christmas party. How do you approach that? Yeah, there's a lot of people that overlap kind of with nutrition, right, in, that, in the health space. PT is yep. a great example for sure, chiropractor. But yeah, and I could go a few ways with this. I think generally, if your specialty is not nutrition, I, I would stay out of a lot of the weeds of it. I would, you know, do the basics, 
fruits and veggies. Let's cut back on the soda and the processed foods. And then I would refer out to the resources that you like and you trust. And I know she said that they specifically ask her and that's fine. But I think generally keep the conversation simple, have some resources that you like to send them to. And and some of that is, I'll get to it, but some of it is just because a lot of times these conversations, they start really simple, but then you find out they're on all these meds or they don't like Mm. these foods or they're complaining of certain hormone levels or whatever it is. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're now neck deep in a conversation when maybe it's best outside your scope, right? So that's my general thought is keep it really basic have resources send them to. But the other reason here is, and we talked about this in one of our early, early podcasts, convincing your loved ones to change. Gosh, might have been episode three or something. But there is no convincing in nutrition. There's there's no convincing. And, and that's because there tends to be a lot of emotions in it, right? There tends to be a lot of belief in it. And it's generally just a waste of time to try to convince somebody to do something different than what they're doing. I've said it before, I've convinced a total of zero people (laughs) to change their nutrition. You know, I I really hope that I've helped educate people, inspire people, but it's the people that are already looking to change. It's not the ones that are like, kind of stuck in their ways, right? And that's very different people that are already looking for change is very different than somebody who is just wanting to vent, or to tell you about what they're currently doing. So even if they say like, you know, I'm doing this keto fasting juice cleanse, as Andrea said, I wouldn't respond back with that's an effective try the 800 gram challenge. (laughs) As much as Mm -hmm. I appreciate the ground support of my uh, program, I would instead turn it back and just sort of say, how's it going for you? You know, and listen to what they have to say. I'm going to assume it's not going well. I'd probably follow up with something like, well, what do you think the problem is? And only if it fits somewhere in there, hey, I've got some resources for nutrition if you're interested. And if they really want the solution, they will follow up on the resources that you provide for them. And in some ways, I think it's a great first screen to see if the person's mm. actually interested, right? To see if they actually want to make the change. Because I think people say things all the time that they want, but they're not ready to put in the work for that change. You know, we change when we're ready to change. And so Andrea said, quote, when people seem to want to stick to their guns on the frou-frou stuff, you have your answer. They want to stick to their guns. (laughs) You know, they're not ready for change. They want to vent about it, but they're not ready for change. Mm -hmm. And expressing that frustration is different than, than ready for that change. And so they really have to want to do it. I can also tell you that you can have a really quick gauge of how interested they are. In in what you have to say. So let's say, for example, the conversation's okay. They're, they're, They've expressed their frustration. They're not making progress. You said, hey, I've got some resources. Are you interested? They say, yeah, sure. And then you say something like, yeah, I've got this. I know this person who has this non-restrictive approach called the 800 gram challenge. I think you should go check it out. You basically add some fruits and veggies to the diet. You know, it's 800 grams a day. I can send you more information. And, And if they throw up their walls, like, oh my God, that's way too many fruits and vegetables. That will never work in my house with my significant other and my family. That's, that is just too much. You already have your answer, you know, and Mm -hmm. people will let you know pretty quickly what what they think about it. (laughs) And and in my opinion, there's no need to kind of continue the discussion because again, you won't be successful in convincing. So my main thoughts, refer out as much as possible. Let them lead the conversation. If they're sticking to their guns, if they're throwing their walls up, I, I think it's, pretty much clear that they're not particularly interested in hearing about your solution, even if it's a good one. Because yeah, they might just be venting frustration, which is totally different than necessarily wanting your input. Mm. Okay. My own quick by question to you. Yeah. What is harder Mm. to get somebody (laughs) to change their mind about nutrition, 
politics. Oh, dear. Religion or CrossFit. Oh, wow. What's the hardest of those four? I would say definitely not CrossFit. Well, (laughs) maybe. (laughs) The CrossFit one is pretty easily countered when you start talking about injuries at any sport. Yep. Which is true. Like, it's so funny. People think it's so dangerous. And then you're like, have you been to like... (laughs) Have you gone jogging yet? (laughs) Right. Like, have you talked to any runner? I mean, their knees are... (laughs) Typically, you can get them to come back on that or football or, or, you know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Like, but you're right. There is no convincing. I stay out of all of those topics. (laughs) Except maybe the crossover one. Uh, Okay. Jennifer asks... (laughs) I'm curious about your thoughts regarding creatine. I'm trying really hard to lose weight right now, and I'm super nervous about adding weight due to bloating, but I feel it could really help with my workouts. Kind of torn, don't fully understand. Yeah, so as we know, or some of us might know that creatine is one of our my two supplements we put in the mm-hmm. worth a shot bucket, TM. Mm-hmm. TM, trademark. Trademark. <clears throat> yeah, and that's because, <laughs> that's right. And that's because there's definitely been a lot of research that suggests it will help increase strength as well as lean mass. And so, yeah, uh, worth a shot. Now, why? Creatine is used in the phosphocreatine pathway to help us create high power, short duration type energy. And we do get naturally occurring creatine in animal products like fish, meat, and poultry, but our body will also synthesize it from amino acids in our diet. And so I think sometimes the variability that we see in these supplementation trials may be due to the variation, not just of the training styles we're doing, but the variation in our diets. For example, vegetarians might respond more favorably to creatine supplementation, right? Because they might be getting less of it in their diet. And so the dose that we hear that is useful for creatine typically is this three to five grams a day. You can use creatine monohydrate. And oftentimes you'll hear creatine talked about that people should go through this loading dose where they kind of do a higher amount of grams per day to load up so that they have enough and then drop back to the three to five grams per day. You can eventually get there on a regular dose. So unless you have this really short time frame that you're working with, I wouldn't bother. I would just start at three to five grams per day and, and see what happens after a few weeks. Now, I am going to get to the bloating. I know that's what Jennifer asked about, but I always like to put things in context, right? So this is more for the entire audience. This isn't necessarily just directed <laughs> at, at Jennifer, but you know, supplementation isn't going to do much, of course, if the training stimulus isn't there and total protein isn't there, right? Mm-hmm. Supplementation in the absence of, of right training and overall diet, getting those in line is, is just sort of silly. So we always have to make sure that we're really training hard and that we're doing at least this 0.7 grams per pound of body weight products. Oh, I'm just going to supplement my way to, <laughs> you know, all this muscle mass. I also want to point out to Jennifer's question, she did mention she's really trying to ha- hard to lose weight. Just to set those expectations, right? Like if the desired effect of creatine is to add lean mass, like I know she means she wants to lose fat, but you just have to be aware that that scale might actually increase, right? When we add lean mass mm-hmm. and this doesn't happen overnight, of course, this would be a long-term effect, but I think we have to remember that sometimes when we're hyper fixated on the scale, that with lean mass, that that might go in a direction that you were not expecting or, or ultimately wanted. Okay. Bloating. What Jennifer actually asked about. Creatine does increase water retention, but it does so intra- cellularly, which means the muscle would actually appear to look bigger. It wouldn't be bloating in, let's say, your face or your stomach. So when people talk about bloating, the unfavorable bloating, they're talking about that puffy effect where we have an increase in extracellular water or water outside of the cells. And and this would happen, you know, after you had a really high salt intake or really high processed food, sometimes the body will retain a couple pounds of water to keep that sodium 
concentration in check outside of the cells. And this is why you kind of look puffy. But creatine actually pulls water into the cell. And so you wouldn't have that same look. There is the also potential effect that you could have some digestive distress from too high amounts of creatine. So potentially some bloating related to that, but that doesn't really seem to happen in these three to five gram doses. So all in all for Jennifer, or really anybody who's thinking about the creatine, got to make sure the protein intake is consistent across all of your days at at least that 0.7. Make sure that your strength training is frequent and intense enough to get the results you want. And then yes, potentially consider creatine in the three to five gram range. Of course, I'm always worried that people jump to the creatine before those first two steps are in line. All right, my friend, those are the questions we have today for our Quick Bites episode. Remind folks where how to how to get their questions into the very mm. intricate and well-organized system that we have. What's the best, <laughs> what's the best way? Yeah, optimizemenutrition.com slash email is probably the best way. Most likely to appear on a real Quick Bites episode. Love it. Love it. Okay. Thank you everybody out there for listening. Thank you for your ratings and your reviews. They do help new folks find the show. And EC and I will be back for another episode of the Consistency Project next week. Thanks as always for tuning into the show. I'm sure at this point you've heard me talk about the 800 gram challenge and lazy macros, but if you're not really sure what they are, or you want to get started on them with a little bit more guidance, I wanted to let you know that I have eBooks on both of these programs. And these eBooks are not just some nine or 10 page document that you flip through in a couple minutes. Instead, they are a comprehensive resource, not only for the why behind these methodologies, but also the how. So you're going to get answers to questions like, does the glycemic index matter? Or why is protein good for health? As well as tips and strategies, like how do you make the day successful? And what do you do when you go out to a restaurant? What are some meal ideas? These eBooks have it all. So head on over to optimizemenutrition.com slash 800G for the 800 gram challenge or slash lazy macros for the lazy macros eBooks. The links are also in the show notes and you'll get a bundle discount for both. Again, it's optimizemenutrition.com slash 800G or slash lazy macros to get started. One final note, both the 800 gram challenge and lazy macros are registered trademarks. So if you're looking to run a challenge at your gym or with a specific group or a corporate wellness program, contact me through my website, or at info at optimizemenutrition.com for your options.